This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The growth of artificial intelligence has already started to have an impact in the world of medicine. Several commercial algorithms have been approved by regulators for clinical use across a broad spectrum. Proponents of this technology say it offers great potential in predicting things like drug interaction, risk factors for infections, and even cancer diagnoses. But how do we advance it beyond the possible to systems that actually make a difference in healthcare delivery and outcomes for patients? Our next guests have some suggestions in this area. Ravi Parikh is a fellow in hematology and oncology at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine. Emil Navate is an assistant professor of health policy and medicine, as well as a senior fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute for Health, health Economics here at the University of Pennsylvania. They present these ideas in an article in the journal Science, which they co-wrote along with Berkeley Health Policy and Management Associate Professor Ziad Obermeyer. It's titled Regulation of Predictive Analytics in Medicine and looks at how advanced algorithms can be regulated in order to provide maximum benefit. Great to have you both here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I, I guess let's start by, Emil, setting the, the stage as to the uses and how prevalent algorithms are in the medical industry right now overall. So the interesting thing is <clears throat> algorithms and data have been used in medicine you know, as far back as we can really think. We have, as clinicians, we use decision rules all the time that are based on pretty traditional statistical type of models. What's new here, Dan, is that we have an expanse, you know, troves and troves of data that are being collected uh, as a byproduct of providing care in the electronic health record. All of a sudden now we have the techniques, we have the data to be able to harness all of that data to try to improve clinical care. Robbie? Robbie? Absolutely, and I think the nature, the nature of some of these algorithms as well is that they can generate predictions in real time in automated fashion. I think about decision rules that I use in clinical practice that require oftentimes uh, tens or dozens of variables of manual input taking up time during which I could be talking to patients. One of the promises of these algorithms they could, is they can provide predictions right at the point of care. And so then the difference between what we have been seeing in terms of the use of data and algorithms and what we're talking about now with advanced algorithms, how do you differentiate the two? Yeah, I think there is a, there's a couple of points. One is just the capacity of the number of variables that algorithms nowadays are able to account for. Um, when I think about decision rules, I think about usually less than 10 things that I'm, I'm thinking about to input into a decision rule. Right. These algorithms can account for tons of vital signs, variability in vital signs, um, things that we've entered into the electronic medical records uh, over the past year or decades beforehand. And I think that capacity to um, interpret all of this information is probably the most unique thing that, that advanced algorithms can, can account for. And, and the, that obviously opens so many doors for various elements of the medical community. It does, absolutely. And I think, so if we take an example, I think we can actually try to make this concrete. So, you know, there's a certain type of uh, heart arrhythmia, abnormal rhythm called atrial fibrillation. And right now, as clinicians, you know, we can use a point score. It's called the CHADS of two vast score. And we use that score and we say, hey, patients over 75 years old, they've had a history of a stroke. And, and we can add up points and that grades, uh, you know, gives us some sense of what the risk is. And then mm -hmm. we know what to do from a clinical perspective of what medications to prescribe or how to manage that patient. That's all done, however, using a retrospective study that's happened, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. Right. It's not necessarily customized to my patient. 
And what we have now is the ability to use, as Ravi was saying, you know, thousands of variables potentially to actually say, for my patient, what is the recommendation based on what's happening locally? It's customized to my patient. Right. That's the potential. That's the potential. Doesn't mean that it doesn't come with challenges. So where are we in the in the scope of, of being able to re- kind of reach that 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 framework at this point? So I think in some areas we've seen pretty dramatic possibilities and perhaps even some realization of that possibility. So, for example, there's an interesting uh, interesting application that's come out where software can actually look at pictures of people's eyes, retina, the backs of their eyes, and diagnose as well as an eye doctor would certain diseases. And that's pretty neat because that means, you know, we, we could potentially do this at scale in a very rapid fashion. Right. The, the point that Ravi and I, I think, have noted is that, however, when you take these algorithms and you apply them to clinical practice... We have to be very careful because just identifying something as abnormal doesn't mean that we can change clinical outcomes. Right. And we have to regulate, we have to think about regulating these algorithms or these interventions much in the same way that we think of anything else, a right. drug, a device, you know, what, ha- what have you. And today, it doesn't seem like we've really picked up on that. You know, the FDA hasn't really picked up on that. And that's where I think we wanted to just articulate this concern and say, let's be careful here. Let's make sure we're pegging this to the same standards we use to evaluate any other medical technology. Right. And, and the interesting thing is, Ravi, is the fact that this is a, a, an industry that is, is regulated quite a bit. And so then to see an element that is kind of going to be that next generation, that next 20, 30, 40 years, and there isn't the focus yet on regulation – I, I would think, obviously, it's part of the reason why you're doing this, did this paper, but it also, it does have to bring a lot of people to, to pause and, and to think about where we're going with this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Amol and I are coming at this from kind of unique perspectives. I mean, both of us do research related to developing some of these algorithms, but both of us have interest and, and expertise in, in health policy as well. And so, you know, merging these two things is really how our article and our framework came together. I want to also, you know, just mention that this is still a burgeoning field ripe for innovation that in some ways is much more poorly understood than we understand the components behind a drug or the components behind a medical device. How so? Well, you know, let me give you an example. So when we put variable, when when we um, design machine learning algorithms, we, you know, I've participated in research designing a machine learning algorithm to help predict mortality for patients with cancer. Right. Um, when we input the sheer number of variables in there and, and, uh, and the algorithm generates an extremely accurate prediction of risk of, of um, short-term mortality, it's hard to determine sometimes what variables are having most importance within that machine learning algorithm. Some people have called this the black box right. of AI and machine learning. And, and so uh, there has to be an entirely different framework in how we... Um, interpret the explainability of some of these algorithms and, and, and how, what our expectations are of it, because we can have better predictions. But sometimes when we look under the hood, we don't really understand what's going into it. Emil? Yeah, I, I think that I'll echo a couple of points that Ravi has made. I think, you know, one thing is we're actually we're actually coming at this not as critics of AI or artificial intelligence applications in medicine. In fact, as proponents. Right. But I think right. but I think understanding that we have to use this uh, or we have to sort of carry this out in a very responsible fashion where we're really protecting patient safety. So then how, how do you view then the role that an organization, an agency like the FDA needs to take where you're talking about all of these different new elements surrounding algorithms coming into the medical world? Yeah, I think I think there's an important responsibility to set the right standards, right? And those standards have to be around what benefits patients. Right. 
And I think that it, it requires a little bit of nuance in terms of clarifying, because it's not to say that the FDA hasn't been well-intentioned to date in how they've approved these algorithms. I think, you know, I think let me take a step back and basically articulate one of the, the key pieces that makes this really challenging, because I think on the face of it, it seems, it seems easy. It seems like, you know, we look at how Netflix makes recommendations or Amazon, you're on the website and makes recommendations. You know, people who ordered this also like this. You know, it seems like, hey, can we just use AI in medicine? Maybe right. we can better diagnose patients than humans can. Right, right. One, one really important piece that's, that's challenging here when we're trying now, I want to highlight this, trying to improve upon human clinician decision making, right, is that the way algorithms actually see data it's because of somebody like Ravi or myself being in the hospital ordering tests. Right. So this is all the algorithms essentially are seeing data that's filtered through my eyes, that's filtered through Ravi's decision making. So if we turn around and say we're going to use that same data to, quote, beat Ravi in the clinic, that actually is challenging because right. all of it's coming filtered through Ravi's lens in the first place. And, and so we risk doing things that frankly, clinicians would think of as stupid, right? So, <laughs> so, so let me give you an example. You know, a patient's coming into the emergency department, and they could have something called sepsis, which is a really severe infection that yeah. could kill them, right? And we risk designing algorithms that, you know, essentially uh, tap on the shoulder of the physician and say, hey, your patient has sepsis, and the reason is because you ordered antibiotics and you ordered blood cultures and you ordered tests that probably indicate that you're worried about sepsis. Right. And so the, you know, the, the clinician basically says, well, no duh, right? That's why I ordered those tests. Right. And so we risk doing things that will, you know, that will irritate physicians, but probably more importantly, we just won't have real clinical impact. Ravi? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think to, you know, one of the offshoots of this that, you know, we brought up in the paper that is also of concern is um, the fact that a lot of this is being filtered through clinicians' current practices means that we run the risk with some of these algorithms of perpetuating bad practices. Right. Um, I'll use an example um, from another industry of, of what we're talking about. Amazon's facial recognition software, this has been much well publicized, uh, trained on thousands and thousands of people, very accurate for the people that it was trained on, right. um, uh, namely white male patients. And such facial recognition software did pretty poorly um, when it came to interpreting faces of females or minorities. Right. We run the same risk of reinforcing potential biases that we're perpetuating through the medical system, whether unintentionally or intentionally. How does this then factor in when you, I mean, we're talking about in part the actual care of the patient, but there are also other elements involved in this industry, like the device makers, uh, like Big Pharma, which I would think they have to be involved in this process to a degree as well. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I think, you know, they, they're largely proponents of it because I think it, it is potentially, you know, increasing evidence-based practice. I think, you know, getting the right drugs to the right people uh, and using the data that, that we're collecting the electronic health record, uh, you know, either for post-market surveillance or for uh, for good. I think, the, the manufacturers actually behind this because this could actually drive better outcomes. This could yeah. drive better use of, of their products. And I think there's an opportunity to blend the two together, to take these predictive analytic type, you know, machine learning, uh, AI, artificial intelligence types algorithms and blend them together with their sorts of products to actually increase, you know, increase the quality of care, but increase patient outcomes. There's a big difference between the better use of their products 
and more use of their products. Mm-hmm. And and, and we have to be honest that, that there is an economic component here when you're talking about big pharma that obviously plays into this. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. I think, you know, not, not that we want to be so naive to not recognize yeah. that. I think that there is that point. But I think having worked with some of these manufacturers around some of, the, uh, some of these issues, I think there is a general sense, I think, that you know, there's under-recognition of a lot of chronic conditions. There's under-diagnosis to the extent that, that better care does equate to greater use of their products. There is sure. some alignment there. Now, we need to be careful about it. Ravi? Absolutely. And I think, you know, part of the issue, part of the, the promise here is that we have somewhat of a playbook to follow. We have, um, we, you know, we're interacting with pharma, with device makers when it comes to regulating drugs and devices all the time. Sure. And there are proprietary yeah. concerns that al- always come into the regulatory process, that the nature of wanting to preserve patient safety and improve patient outcomes with, while you know, preserving the, the drive for innovation that goes into the creation of these amazing tools. And we can, we can you know, in- incorporate a similar framework when it comes to some of these algorithms, incorporate, you know, s- stipulating frameworks that um, preserve the opportunity for, to put it bluntly, um, algorithm developers to make profit off of their product yeah. while still ensuring that through that process, the, the, max, the best patient outcomes are being emphasized from their product. Are, are you confident that an agency like the FDA can, can get this on their radar uh, and, and be able to really start to affect change in this area and understand how important this is to start down this path to be able to have a regulatory framework surrounding algorithms, especially advanced algorithms, so that it's almost like it is a, a seamless continuing of what the medical process has been over the last couple hundred years. Yeah, I, I'm confident. I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about it. One of the reasons I'm optimistic is because the FDA has in some ways already recognized this um, through programs like the 21st Century's Cured Act and a recent act that was passed called the, uh, a recent proposal that was passed um, called the Digital Health Innovation Plan, which actually sets somewhat of a of a pre-market incubator for promising digital health technologies, including AI, to actually help to actually be ushered through the market clearance process, but right. in ways that actually show that they improve patient outcomes. And I think that that that's one of the first steps that I would argue we didn't take with um, other types of poorly understood technologies, like for example, the field of genetic, uh, you know, genetic screening and biomarker screening earlier on, decades ago in right. cancer, my field. Yeah, so take us back, and I wanted to touch on on biomarker issue because compare what you believe was missed back in those days and how we can kind of learn from that and and potentially not create the same mistakes uh, now here in in 2019 and beyond. Yeah, I I think it's it's sort of a similar, it's an analogous process when it comes to to biomarkers because we had at that time tremendous uh, uh, new technologies, new technologies to identify biomarkers and to screen and to screen genomes. And, and, and essentially what we were, what we were um, doing at the time was trying to maximize the ability to extract, uh, to, to um, uh, characterize as many biomarkers and, and genomic abnormalities as possible. What we, what we waited quite a bit to do was to actually ask, well, what is this helping to, what is this helping to, um, uh, to you know, lead clinicians to do, and what is this? Uh, what is it, how is this actually helping clinicians and ha- helping patients? What, what how are these biomarkers going to be used in clinical practice? And right. so, 
it took almost a decade or more to lead to uh, something called uh, the FDA's biomarker verification program that actually set standards for what had to go into um, some of the biomarker validation studies and what uh, how they could be used in clinical trials. I think we have an opportunity to do something similar to that, an algorithm verification program, if you call it, to actually set standards for benefit even while we're developing these to ensure that the best algorithms make it to clinical trials and make it to market. Emil? Yeah, I think in some sense what we're trying to do here is reduce things to first principles. You know, on one hand, artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, as Ravi has been taking you through biomarkers, there's a lot of amazing technology here. Right. Um, that's frankly very complicated. You know, we probably understand an, a small piece of what's <laughs> right. really out there. Right. right. That being said, when we think about FDA as a regulatory agency and what it's really trying to do, you know, there are some early pieces of this that I think are incubating the ideas and really promoting it, and, and that's what Ravi just spoke to. I think the other piece of it is before we put things out into clinical practice, right, this is like allowing a medication to go on the market yeah. or allowing a device to go into clinical practice, that same idea, we, we wanted to actually take a step back and say, you know what, there's some first principles here, right? Do no harm, make sure there's patient safety, make sure that it's actually improving clinical outcomes. And this is really easily understood by the FDA because that's really largely what they're doing already, for medications and right. for devices. So, in fact, I think part of our message here is let's not lose our way. Let's not get too intimidated by all these fancy algorithms and this new technology. A lot of the first principles still apply. Let's just make sure that we keep applying those first principles and we'll do just fine. How, how though, then do the clinicians factor into this process? Because you guys are obviously very well versed in this, but you know, not every clinician is going to be so well versed on algorithms and the big data that you're going to have to set up a framework for them to be able to have an assistance to be able to to make these kind of calls. Yeah, I, I think we should go back to the drug and device examples again. I don't. I, I, I'd be lying to you if I could tell you the exact molecular characteristics or the exact specifications of most of the drugs or devices that I use today. Right. But I trust them because they've been vetted through a rigorous process, namely clinical trials and, and, um, and other standards that the FDA enforces. In other words, they've gone through a playbook. I think that we can, we can set similar standards for algorithms to go to the playbook sure. such that um, every clinician doesn't have to understand or have a PhD in, in computer science and machine learning. But as long as they, it, these tools have been shown in validated clinical trials to, uh, using standards of clinical benefit that we enforce upon drugs and devices like we do, I think clinicians will be comfortable, will, will begin to become comfortable using these tools, even without understanding exactly what goes under the hood. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, uh, in fact, the role of the FDA is not to put the clinician in the very uncomfortable uh, you know, situation that they're adjudicating, do I use this or do I sure, not use right, it, yeah, right? Yeah. And so that way, if if a platform, if an algorithm ends up being used in clinical practice, you know, we can at least have some confidence that, hey, this is something that has been vetted, it's unlikely to hurt my patients, and in fact, it's likely to benefit my patients. So That's the role here. Do you think that, that in the end that that would be something that I think obviously would be Overseen by the FDA, but may not. You know, it may be an outside body that works in conjunction with the FDA. Yeah, I think the so there's sort of three parts of this. I think are important, perhaps to disentangle. Right? Okay. The the first part of it, and Ravi spoke to this, is basically you know incubating, creating the right environment for innovation. Right. We have to be careful that we don't use you know clinical trial type standards very early in the process when we're initially developing these technologies and algorithms. Right. 
If we do that, then we're going to stifle innovation. That's really what we don't want to do. The second piece is, so after we go through that process and we're going through the traditional clinical trial type phases, right, we want to apply those same type of clinical trial standards to these algorithms and these devices, right? Right. We're not trying to reinvent the standards. We want to use the same standards. Right. And then there's the post-market piece of this, and this is where I'm getting to your point. So post-market, right now, you know, the FDA through the Sentinel Initiative and others does a lot of post-market surveillance to see, you know, when drugs are out there and being used. You know, they were used initially vetted in these clinical control trials. Now right. they're being used in the real world. Are there bad things happening? Are there good things happening? Let's know. Right. Right. That's where I think perhaps we'll need a partnership here, because a lot of this is going to happen. A lot of this being implementation of these algorithms is going to happen in real world clinical settings sure, yeah. where that data, some of it may make its way back to the FDA, but a lot of it may not. Ravi. Oh, I'm sorry. Finish up. Uh, so I was just going to say that I think uh, the health system, the health delivery organizations are going to have to be key partners here. Sure. And and making sure that we adjudicate what's working and what's not working after we've already put things into clinical practice. Absolutely. I completely agree. I don't have anything else to add. <laughs> well, th- then it sounds like you're very confident. And, and obviously, in this world that we live right now with, with algorithms, uh, it's not a surprise that, that they have become an important component to the medical field in general. And like a lot of people believe, and I, and I think when you talk about big data and algorithms, there is a, a segment of the public that worries about how this is going to impact what goes on on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. But there's also another segment that says, look at the potential that we have here. And and if we can continue to move forward with the right processes in place, then we have the potential for benefit of of X, Y, and Z well done, you know, as we move down the road. Absolutely. And I think it, it's important as we kind of frame this to doctors and to the public, because again, this is a very sensitive issue. Sure. Uh, in, when, when we talk about AI and radiology, for example, a lot of a lot of tools have been framed um, as uh, AI is going to replace the radiologist. Right. Um, right. Similar discussions have been had with pathologists. Similar discussions have been had with a variety of medical fields. If we keep framing the discussion as replacements or efficiency as opposed to um, an added tool of potential benefit when doctors talk to patients. If, if we frame it as replacements, then we run the risk of really turning people off to these to this technology before it has the chance to, ch- to show its benefit. And so I think when we're actually testing these in clinical trials, the way to show their benefit is to integrate them in the workflow of already existing clinicians' yeah. processes and show how it improves things rather than comparing algorithm versus clinician. Yeah, I, I think that you know AI offers uh, this extremely exciting vision for the future, and there's I think a lot of the healthcare community ran into artificial intelligence with this unbridled enthusiasm, right? Yeah, that this yeah. is going to change healthcare. I think what we now, after many years of working in the space, I think we now have the humility to take a step back and say. This is really hard. You know, it's yeah. really hard to do this in healthcare <laughs> yeah. for a variety of reasons. There's ethical reasons. You know, there's some of the technological and methodological reasons yeah. that, that I outlined earlier. It's really hard. And so what we need to be is very clear-eyed about what we're trying to do and what we consider success. You yeah. know, when are we going to actually raise the banner mission accomplished? And when are we going to have the humility to say, you know what? No, we have more work to do here. And the FDA can be a key partner, I think, in doing that. Great having you both here. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you, a lot. Thank you. Ravi Parikh and Abel Navate from University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.